all reason and logic um, pointed to a slam dunk conviction. This case was also about a white police officer accused of killing a black man and in America. Years of experience have taught us that despite mountains of evidence, American juries rarely convict white officers for killing black people. And indeed, police officers in the US, and this may seem unimaginable in the UK, kill an average of around a thousand people every year. That's about three people a day. Hello, and welcome to the Matrix Law Pod with me, Richard Hermer and Helen Mountfield. Early last June, we spoke to David Lammy MP in the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd on a street in Minneapolis. By then, it was already clear that Mr. Floyd's death was taking on a significance not always accorded by society as a whole to the death of a black man at the hands of US law enforcement. Demonstrations spread from across the United States, across the globe, galvanising new constituencies in the fight against institutionalised racism, not least in the realm of policing. The following months saw race and policing often at the forefront of the agenda in a presidential campaign like no other. And thereafter, the trial of Derek Chauvin was followed by millions of people across the world, most of whom would have watched or have been aware of the nine minutes and 29 seconds of footage of a police officer's knee on Mr. Floyd's neck. In the aftermath of the verdict, President Biden said of the killing of George Floyd, it was a murder in the full light of day, and it ripped the blinders off for the whole world to see the systemic racism the vice president just referred to. The systemic racism that is a stain on our nation's soul, the knee on the neck of justice for black Americans, the profound fear and trauma, the pain, the exhaustion that black and brown Americans experience every single day. Great praise from the president, to be sure, and a response far more appropriate, no doubt, than the one that would have been given by his predecessor. But does this verdict really herald a change for policing in the United States? Or was it just a one-off rarity, compelled by the existence of indisputable evidence, brought at a particular moment in time? How pervasive is racism, not simply in policing, but across the United States criminal justice system? And what needs to be done by this new administration to reset? These are some of the questions that we'll be exploring in this podcast. But we also want to examine what lessons there are for the United Kingdom. To what extent do our communities suffer from the same or similar inequities in policing and criminal justice? And what should we be doing about it? Here to discuss these questions are two eminent practitioners in the field of police law, Craig Futterman and Raju Bat. Craig is Professor of Law at the University of Chicago Law School. And like all good legal academics, he not only talks about law, but practices it both in the past in private practice and in the Office of the Public Defender. Craig is a well-acknowledged expert in the field of police brutality and the unequal impact on minority communities. He's written and lectured extensively on the topic, including in the pre-pandemic world, in a highly lauded lecture delivered at Matrix Chambers. And I'm going to seek to uh, avoid asking Craig why that's not highlighted at the top of his CV. Raju Bat is a partner at one of the United Kingdom's leading civil liberties firm, Bat Murphy, and is widely acknowledged as the doyen of the police law world. Combining a background in activism with intellectual rigour, Raju has, over the course of a career spanning 30 years, acted in many of the most high-profile police abuse cases in this country and has been instrumental in the development of the law. Craig, I'm going to start with you, if I may, uh, with an almost impossible uh, question, which is to step back 
prior to the George Floyd case and ask you if you would just to give us a pen portrait of the problems with policing and race in the United States. Well, I actually tried to bring it together with, um, with the verdict because I'll say that because of this, I released one heck of a breath as Judge Cahill read that verdict in Minneapolis last week. As much as I hoped and believed that that would be the result, I actually didn't realize just how nervous I was until I began to hear Judge Cahill announce the jury's decision. And like most people in the United States, I released some breath and began to exhale. Um, and I saw a television cameras then panned to the defense counsel table. And I looked at Derek Chauvin and I saw his eyes just start nervously in denial. And he still couldn't believe what was happening, that he would actually be held accountable for what he did. Like, I'm the police. He didn't listen. And this goes to the systemic problems because this case really should have been a slam dunk for the prosecutor. The video we all saw Derek Chauvin kill George Floyd with their own eyes. It shouldn't have been this hard. And that's, this isn't a criticism of the prosecution because I thought the prosecution did a truly excellent job in the case. Um, but while all reason and logic um, pointed to a slam dunk conviction, this case was also about a white police officer accused of killing a black man and in America. We don't hold, um, I mean, years of experience have taught us that despite mountains of evidence, American juries rarely convict white officers for killing black people. And indeed, police officers in the US, and this may seem unimaginable in the UK, kill an average of around a thousand people every year. That's about three people a day. Yet until last week's verdict, only seven police officers had been convicted of murder in the United States since 2005. And if I do the math, that's about seven out of 16,000 police killings. So um, to your question, why is it so hard and so difficult to see a conviction in one of these cases? Um, as you framed it, it's about race or more accurately racism. More than twice as black folks are more than twice as likely as people of all the races to be killed by the police in the United States. In Chicago, where I live over the past 30 years, more than three quarters of people killed by police have been black. And while black folks are most likely to be killed by police, and this is something that goes to our, our system of justice, they're also systematically excluded from serving as jurors in civil rights cases involving police abuse. Because one of the standard questions, this might not surprise you, but one of the standard questions that's asked of every potential juror in a case like this is whether they or anyone who they know or know well, have a close personal relationship with, have had a negative experience with the police. And um, actually, when I first met Raju back in uh, 2017, I think, and I remember having a conversation with him and his colleagues in Manchester about um, a youth police project that we founded and we built in Chicago. And, and what I shared was one of the things that we do is just have conversations and talk and listen and learn from um, students, high school students, about their everyday interactions with, with, with the police. And one of the things that we learned, and I remember sharing this, was that virtually every black student, high school student who I talk with on the south side of Chicago, tells us that either they or someone who they love have had negative encounters with the police, whether it means being harassed, arrested, beaten, and even people who they love being killed. And in contrast, when we've had those, those similar conversations with hundreds of white high school students, sometimes even in high schools just a couple of blocks away from 
the same high school. So we were speaking with black students at no one, um, no one, nor had anyone they loved been arrested, killed or beaten by the police. And so what this means in terms of juries that um, U.S. juries systematically are excluding often for cause um, people from the communities who are most impacted by police abuse, the very people most likely to understand experiences of racism. So what was different with this trial? Why um, did this trial produce a guilty verdict when so many others in the past have produced uh, acquittals? Why, for example, in this trial, did you have police officers giving evidence to the prosecution rather than all lining up uh, with a blue wall and able to remember anything or giving supportive accounts? What what explains it? Yeah, we'd love to talk about that, particularly the police consensus. But let's just start with the obvious the video. I mean, the video. Um, this was a video that brought universal condemnation around the world. I mean, this was a murder in plain sight in front of a slew of witnesses that was caught on video. There's that iconic image of Derek Chauvin staring directly into this camera, um, the menacing look on his face, hand in his pocket without a care in the world as he buried his knee into George Floyd's neck for no less than nine minutes and 29 seconds. At the same time, while this man is pleading for his life, calling for his deceased mother and was then ultimately unable to say anything at all while life was crushed out of him. Um, you know, as you said, one of the things that was different about this case and, and about this trial from virtually every other case of police violence in the United States was just what you mentioned was that a number of police officers led indeed by Minneapolis's chief of police who lined up to testify against Derek Chauvin to break the police code of silence. Um, and, and what the prosecutor did as a matter of strategy and, 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 and the prosecutor and police did everything they possibly could within their power to separate Derek Chauvin and his actions from the police. Police witnesses lined up to say one after one, this isn't us, this isn't who we are. Um, and I think, Richard, what's critically important is that we, we, we don't have a short memory because even this case didn't start out that way. The Minneapolis Police Department itself released a dramatically different statement on the day that Derek Chauvin murdered George Floyd. The official statement of the police department, the headline read something like, man dies after a medical incident during a police interaction. And it was carefully crafted to protect Chauvin and the other officers who killed George Floyd. The wall of silence, nothing to see here. Not a word about Derek Chauvin's knee or those nine minutes and 29 seconds. So we can afford um, to forget that if not for the courage of that 17-year-old girl in her video, and I should say her name, Darnella Frazier, because we need to honor her, but for her extraordinary courage, the police department would have been able to write off George Floyd's murder as just business as usual, just another unfortunate death of a black man who, in quotes in their statement, appeared to be under the influence. But we've had we've had videos before. I mean, famously Rodney King and the LAPD. Um, was it the was it was there anything else? Was it was this? Uh, 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 were there wider influences in play, or do you think it really was the video that forced the police to take a line they'd never and the prosecution they wouldn't normally take? Well. You're right that it's more than just a video, because um, what we've seen in America are numerous instances in which videos have captured gross police abuse and dating back to the early 1990s, as you know, of, of Rodney King 
and the officers there being um, acquitted before an all-white jury first in CV, in CV ballot. And we've seen a numbness as well. But one of the things that's different about this, about this, this video, and, and it also takes me back a lot to another video um, that I talked about in my last visit um, from Chicago of a killing of a 17-year-old boy, Laquan McDonald in Chicago. Again, a video that we actually fought to release um, and fought for more than a year after someone similar to here had the courage, in this case, someone within law enforcement had the actual courage to give me a call and to break that code of silence confidentially and let me know about this video that was being buried and that wouldn't have ever come to light and there never would have been a prosecution but for that. But what's different about both of those two videos is that typically even on the nightly news or on the cable talk show networks that you see folks arguing on all sides that, you know, lawyers arguing that, yes, this is justified, no, this isn't, and the same kind of tired conversations that rarely move um, beyond the talking heads. And this was one of the rare occasions where there really wasn't anything that could be argued on the other side. So there was such universal condemnation and so many witnesses where even police officers, I should say even police officers, it was one of the rare occasions in which police from around the world and within the United States also lined up and tried to say, this is not us. But I think what's it's important, and the point that I actually was trying to make as well is that um, as much as the prosecutors, um, and they succeeded, and I think this was the right legal strategy in separating the actions of Derek Chauvin from those of the MPD and and a trial theme that they had for those who watched it was, this isn't policing, this is, this is murder. The reality is, is that there really wasn't so much meaningful separation between um, the police department and the actions of Derek Chauvin that day. When he crushed the life out of that, of George Floyd, he was a Minneapolis police officer. He wasn't called out by the department. They protected him. Nothing to see here. Um, and, and, and so with apologies to the prosecution, this wasn't just a case about murder. It also was very much a case about policing in America. Helen. Well, I just, I, I want, when you asked that question, Richard, I wanted to answer with your language because it was so slam dunk. There was nothing to do except try to distance him from the culture of the police. But I think, I mean, I've, I've seen this in, in a domestic, uh, much smaller, thankfully, university context here where a student, um, a student at Oxford University was dragged, a blind black student was dragged out of the Oxford Union and they denied it and said he had been violent. He had been fighting the security guards, one blind man against two security guards. And it was his fault until a video came out that made it so slang dunk that they had to sort of shift course and say, not our culture, we'll, we'll, we'll look into this. It's, it's not us. And I think it is just that very important video that, that is the difference, that they had, to, they had to distance themselves. Whereas if there's any excuse, as arguably there was in the Rodney King um, video, well, you know, who, who knows what was going on? There was lots of things going on. They'll make an excuse and here they just couldn't. But isn't that rather depressing, Craig, from a <laughs> web looking, looking to the horizon and asking, does this trial signify... Uh, the possibility of systemic or institutionalised change, um, if this really turned on the fact that the police just came to face the realities of the video that couldn't be explained in anything other than a, as a murder, and they, this was a politically expedient decision, um, then it doesn't suggest, does it, that there's going to be um, proper reflection and insight as to what really needs to change. 
I think you're absolutely correct about the depressing nature of it because um, it is important to remember that this didn't happen by itself, that this happened only because people made it happen. Um, and so in response, we shouldn't be confused that now this eighth guilty verdict of Oaks since 2005 actually means that we've achieved justice, um, that we've achieved justice in, in, in America. It doesn't mean that we've addressed systemic racism and policing. Um, it certainly doesn't mean that police will suddenly stop killing and abusing black people, as we saw literally minutes from the reading of the verdict in Columbus, Ohio. Um, another girl, a 16-year-old girl, killed by police in Columbus, Ohio. And it certainly doesn't mean that we've addressed the code of silence that you asked me about. So a guilty verdict doesn't mean that all is well in America, that we can assure that um, police will be held accountable when they use their power. And indeed, even you know when I, when I talked about holding my breath, um, the fact that all of us had to hold our breath as Judge Cahill read that verdict shows how far we remain from equal justice in America. Craig, I, I wonder if it's, though, the kind of case that brings people who don't believe in police injustice or think there may be things they don't understand about individual circumstances so face-to-face -face with something so shocking that it can start those conversations. And, and you know, the Stephen Lawrence case, the graphic case of that kind in this country, although that, again, took a while and a lot of denial first. But if you have that kind of iconic moment which makes... Everybody think there's no two ways about this. It's it's police racism. No, no, you know that that perhaps you start the conversations about how that happens structurally, and what can be done about it in a wider group of people and kind of lawyers who specialise in this kind of thing. Well, Helen, I think that that's what that's what in lots of ways gives me hope. But it's not just starting the conversation because, as as Richard also intimated, I mean there have been irrefutable evidence data of systemic racism that should have pushed our nation and world um, beyond denial long before this moment. And I think that's why we've seen the kind of frustration that we've seen in America uh, and throughout the world in terms of people taking to the streets. But what gives me the most hope, Helen, is, is, is not so much the verdict itself but rather the courage of that 17-year-old girl who stood her ground and recorded that video while Officer Chauvin stared menacingly at her. Um, what gives me hope also is the courage of the ordinary people who just happened to be here, who stood up and told the truth about what they saw and in court. And what gives me probably the most hope is the hundreds of thousands of people, um, of our people, of, of um, you know, across race, across class, um, across age, who stood up around the world just to say, this is wrong, as you said, and, and, and that this needs to stop. Because if there's one thing that I've learned in all the years that I've done this work in my legal clinic in Chicago is that things don't change by themselves. Change isn't self-executing, but things change only when we make them change. And that's what gives me hope. So what's the new administration got to do to galvanize this moment and affect change? Well, one of the things, one of the questions is how much does... Um, a new administration really mean um, in, in when we think about policing in America, because policing in the states is hyper-localized. Um, there are over 18,000 police departments who have their own sets of rules, 50 different states with their own sets of laws. 
And um, there is a limited amount of, uh, there's a limited role that federal government plays, but I don't want to minimize that role. So the kinds of things and, and the kinds of impact that the federal government have had have been, they've stepped in to actually um, intervene when there are departments who are engaged in patterns and practices of human and civil rights abuses. And one of the powers that the federal government has is actually unlike, and this is very different than um, private litigants often have, they have the power to actually sue the local police departments um, for an injunction, for an order seeking change and, and seeking reform. And immediately, actually, one of the big differences that I've already noticed in just the first 100 days of the Biden administration as compared to the Trump administration is that as of even today, um, the Biden administration launched two pattern and practice investigations, one into Minneapolis Police Department and the other into Louisville during the entire uh, prior administration. There wasn't a single um, investigation of that kind. Great. Can, can you, for someone ignorant of how the, the, the American Constitution works on these things, can you tell me how that happens? Because I was going to say that one of the big changes in British law that came about as a result of the work of Stephen Lawrence's mother, known as Doreen Lawrence, was the introduction of a, a race equality duty, which is now a general equality duty, which is a duty on public authorities to think proactively about the way their policies and procedures affect um, people of colour and, 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 and other um, groups protected by equality law. And I wonder how that works in the States, that, that duty of inquiry and, and looking at the system and the practices. So going back to um, Richard's reference to the um, beating the videotape beating of Rodney King, there was a law that was passed shortly after that beating and that trial. And there were a lot of really terrible things actually about the law and increased death penalty and, and, and things like that in, in America. But one meaningful reform that came from that was it gave the federal government the power to bring the kinds of cases that I talked about, to launch the sorts of investigations from the outside and deploy all the resources of the federal government to investigate civil and human rights violations and also empower then the government to bring those cases in court and to seek then affirmative orders and oversight where we have federal judicial oversight of police departments. One of the things and one of the challenges and, and, and areas that badly need to be changed that we just um, experienced over the last four years with Trump administration with nothing happening, but even without Trump, is that um, the law only allows the federal government to do that as opposed to private people, victims of police misconduct, and even victims of police misconduct who haven't just, um, haven't just been the victim of, um, uh, of an individual racist or, 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 or misogynist police officer, but rather um, someone who's been victimized as a result of a police policy and practice that, for example, have allowed office, those officers to abuse the most vulnerable with impunity. So one of the things that truly need to be reformed in terms of just in, in the United States involves actually giving ordinary people, giving ordinary police misconduct victims the power to bring those kinds of cases, not just to have the power to bring those cases, but one of the things that we've seen have been in the shortcomings of these consent decrees is that 
They haven't been adequately informed by the experiences of the people who've been most impacted. And that has been probably one of the biggest limitations of the success of those degrees. They've made some reforms, but they've also been dramatically and severely limited by the failure to empower those who've been most hurt, most impacted by those practices and excluded the very knowledge of, the, of folks who have the most experience. Roger, can I bring you in now? I noticed uh, as Craig was describing how the police department initially put out a misleading explanation of the shooting before, before realising Donella Fraser had the footage, um, that a kind of a knowing grimace passed your face. And I'm just wondering how many of the experiences that Craig has faced and documented are things that you've also found on this side of the Atlantic? I mean, that is straight out of the playbook of the police forces here that we have seen over the decades. I mean, I think if I just take a step back, I mean, I was glad that Craig talked about the hundreds of thousands of people on the streets who made the change uh, in relation to George Floyd. And in a sense, while we as lawyers always tend to overestimate our impact uh, on politics, it is the politics which impact upon us. And I'm sure the verdict eventually and the conduct of that prosecution was as much uh, shaped by what was happening on the streets as anything else. And indeed, not just around George Floyd's death, but over the pre preceding years around the Black Lives Matter movement. And that has come across the Atlantic to us, just as the civil rights movement in the 60s and the 70s came across to us, just as the Black Power movement shaped the politics of many of us in this country. And we have seen in that context, through the eyes, certainly learning from our comrades across the water, but we have seen our own experiences of how policing impacts on people of colour. And it's a very different history here. We have a history of policing shaped by empire and the history of empire. We have a population which is of population of colour, which is relatively more recent in the sense that uh, the migrations, the mass migrations into this country were. In the, in the middle of the 20th century or just before that, after the war. Uh, and the, if you like, the politics and the politicization of these communities and the face of uh, the struggle of embedding themselves in this community has, has, take, has had a different journey. But certainly since the 50s, when people were acquiring more confidence to speak, stand up for themselves, to stand up for their rights. That hard edge of policing, the fist of policing, uh, came to show itself very, very clearly. And the deaths we have seen over these decades in custody, there has always been that the attempt that Craig spoke about, the attempt to explain away the death rather than to look into it, the tendency to manage the damage from an incident like that rather than investigating it properly. 
Well, I was going to ask you about that. I mean, what's the track record in terms of securing accountability here? I mean, it's depressing in the United States. I mean, here, obviously, we have criminal proceedings, there's civil proceedings, and also now, with the advent of the Human Rights Act, more meaningful inquests into deaths in custody or deaths at the hands of police officers. I mean, what's the track record? Any cause for optimism? Things are getting better if they needed to get better. Well, the machinery for accountability you're looking at in terms of the criminal proceedings uh, in relation to law enforcement officers is frankly dysfunctional, and it always has been, and that is the way in which the investigative machinery has been dysfunctional. And so if the investigating, those responsible for the investigation into an incident are not able or willing to do their job, then the fruits of that investigation will shape the deliberations of the decision makers that come. Sorry. Um, the, the reality in terms of criminal proceedings, if I can deal with that first, is that we still have a prosecuting service which is looking, which tends to look for reasons not to prosecute rather than reasons to prosecute. And as lawyers, we know. If you are tasked with finding reasons, you will. So we have had some progress there as a result of the Human Rights Act and the ability of complainants to bring uh, their entitlement to participate in the investigative machinery to bear. And that has resulted along with the politics on the street, it has resulted in some improvements. So, for example, today, when there is a death in custody, a family is entitled to legal aid, public funding, and a family is entitled to disclosure of the official investigation that has taken place into the death. Now, that is a huge step forward from where we were 30 years ago when we were dealing with deaths without funding, without any disclosure, so we would turn up in the forum where the scrutiny was going to take place with simply a post-mortem report in our hands, whereas those representing the police would have files three foot high, and we were not entitled to see any of that. So we are in a, there's been progress, not gifted to us, it's been fought for by families along every step of the way. And what it enables us to see is still how crap the investigative process is, but that is a step forward. Because when we see how poor it is, we're able to challenge it in a way in which we were completely blind before. The, it would, I would be failing if I didn't mention the disciplinary process, the internal police disciplinary process, because that is also supposedly a part of that machinery of accountability. And that is shaped by the same dysfunctional investigative process we're talking about. Uh, and so, whereas 30 years ago, it would be very, very, very rare for there to be any kind of disciplinary proceedings for the kind of incidents we're talking about, as opposed to the theft of the slice of ham from the kitchen canteen uh, that police officers would be brought to book for. Uh, our clients tended not to see any kind of disciplinary process at all. 
Today, we see some relatively more disciplinary proceedings, but the conduct of those disciplinary proceedings in the same way as the conduct of the few prosecutions we see looks, appears to us as if it has been shaped, it has been designed to fail. And it begs the question about who is in charge there, why, uh, what is the motivation and why. Uh, and inevitably, we are dealing with the politics of the police service in this country and those to whom it is accountable or supposedly accountable, which is our home office. Can I ask you just a question following from your comment about the history of colonial Britain and just the role that race plays in policing and police accountability and your thoughts on that? I mean, quite a lot has been written very eloquently about American history and how if you want to understand how a white police officer can keep a, a, a man strangled for nine minutes, you have to understand that black men were once property under the American legal system. And you have to understand the role that law enforcement played in Jim Crow era. And Craig might want to come in on that. But in, in respect of the role that race plays here, you mentioned our colonial history How's that? How do, how do you see that as playing out in terms of police accountability and police br- brutality? Well, we have to, I think, go back a little bit. I meant I said empire first because I mean empire, and we have to remember that the police force here, the first police force, was modelled on what the British colonial powers were doing in Ireland. That is why that police force was called the Peelers, Robert Peel was the person who brought them over. And that was about social control in Ireland and the lessons of social control being brought over to uh, the United Kingdom, as they called it, to bring the lessons home to bear. And similarly, the lessons of social control in the colonies, whether we're talking about India, Africa, uh, Malaysia. I mean, these are all uh, iconic uh, locations of the atrocities by British law enforcement agencies. And that those lessons have been brought over to the UK. And within the UK since the 50s, after the micro, post-war migrations, the history of policing has been intertwined with the history of race. And you can see at every of every milestone, how race has worked to encourage what I call the law and order lobby, to empower, degrade, to arm and empower the police. And equally, the challenges to the police have come from those in racial minorities, Helen. Yeah. Well, I just, I'm very interested in, in that um, the, the different history of, of racism in Britain from the history in America. And I think it enables us to do, or British society, to do two things. One is to say, that's an American problem. They had slavery in America. You know, we exported ours to the, to the colonies and didn't have slaves, or so many slaves here. Um, but it's an American problem and they have guns That's and hyper-localized police forces. But I do think that history of colonialism is what has enabled us to 
other people of color here and to that that narrative that well they should comply with our rules because it's our country and they're not they're the ex- outsiders creating the trouble and it does seem to me that a very big part of the question here is some of the stuff that Wendy Williams raised in her Windrush report about the absence of proper education about the history of people of colour in, in this country, that actually there have been people here. Yes, the big mass migration was in the 50s, but there were quite a lot of people of colour here before that. Um, and there's been really serious institutional racism before that. And you read Black and British, or, you know, only of the recent, more recent histories and realise, you know, quite how much hasn't been put into our education both in schools, but also in the institutional education of the police and the home office. And I think that may be a really important part of the piece, which we as lawyers do have some role in, in how do we create the duty on public authorities to make sure that people who need to understand that narrative for what they do, do understand it. And I'm interested in using the law, equality law, in, in the context of education and what people need to know. Um, because I think it's a really big missing part of the piece here. And, and it enables us to say, oh, yes, let's teach a bit of um, black history. The slave trade, it was in America and the, and, and the Caribbean. It was bad, wasn't it? And then we were the first country to abolish it. <laughs> You're quite right, Helen. And, you know, I think it is worth placing in context when we, when we talk about policing, we are talking about the hostile environment for immigrants into this country. And that has been a reality long before the Windrush scandal hit us in the face. That is why we were brought up with slogans such as, we are here because you were there. Slogans such as, we're here to to stay, here to fight. Now, those slogans mean something. We were being told we didn't have a right to be here. And the policing was one aspect of that, just as in every, every sphere of social life, there was that kind of degradation. There still is that kind of degradation. So we see the kind of disproportionality during the pandemic, how deaths have affected the minority communities much, much more than uh, the majority communities. And that is about poverty, that is about deprivation, that is about the hostile environment in all its guises. But in terms of policing and the criminal justice system, Richard, to go back to the question you raised, the disproportionality uh, within our criminal justice system is so stark that uh, we don't need to go into all the details about it. David Lamy, whom you had here, spoke about it last year. Craig? A common thing that that I, I feel and have experienced um, both in, in my visit to the UK and, um, and in America is very much the theme that, Roger, that you just raised, the theme of social control. And, you know, one of the things, and I listened carefully to your language, and, and, and because I use some similar language um, in the past, less about the social control, when, when you describe the dysfunctional system when it comes to accountability prosecutions. And then you amended the language later and said, designed to fail. And I used similar language some years ago, and I, and I wrote an article and, and talked about the broken system. And um, I, I've modified that language a lot because, and this goes back to the theme of social control, because broken implies that it, it's not doing what it's supposed to do. 
um, when indeed the the police disciplinary systems and accountability systems, particularly vis-a-vis people of color, are doing precisely what they're designed to do. So it's, it's no accident that the day of the murder of George Floyd, that there's a simultaneous statement that um, justifies this as yet another um, accident and, and police justified killing of, of, of a black person. And so one of the other things that you raised in, in terms of lifting this up and, and, and building new conversations, and one of the roles that I think that lawyers can play, and I, and I feel this is a success that we've had, has gone to actually exposing that very system, exposing those disciplinary systems, exposing those prosecutorial systems, um, and exposing the machinery denial and all that's put into institutional denial to show not what's not working, but to actually expose this is precisely how um, police officers have been able to operate with impunity, at least in, in certain communities. And so one just victory that I know that we talked about and actually I shared last time when I was in Matrix had to do with um, transparency and just some truth telling in ways where our, a, fought, a fight that we had as lawyers that emanated from it began with a woman who was horribly abused by a crew of racist police officers um, who were engaged in a similar pattern, was that um, we were able to lift up and make them public and create a regime of transparency to create the legal principle that complaints of police misconduct in their investigations and all records related the same belong to the public, belong to the people. And with that very information, what we've seen and the kinds of conversations that have happen because this is relates to what Roger was talking about, the relationship between the courtroom, but also to the streets. The work that we did in the courtroom isn't where the real change occurred. Where the changes occurred is that it's been people using that information and using that information to advocate for change on the ground. Yeah. And in our legislatures. Yeah. And and I, I think that's very interesting because it's it chimes also with what Raji was saying about lawyers sometimes overstating their role in changing the world because you have to, otherwise you get depressed. But, <laughs> but, but, you know, we don't do anything on our own. But there is sometimes a story like, like the George Floyd tragedy, which does speak to people and which does create, I don't know if you've seen, just come out on Netflix, Two Distant Strangers, Half Hour Short, which just tells that story and brings it together with the politics at the end. But if we as lawyers can empower people in civil society to capture the story that would otherwise fade into one shocking story and kind of give them a framework within which demands for political justice can be made, things, practical things to the system that would change the system or um, throw open transparency. I think that's a really important issue because otherwise it, it can become very symbolic and then everyone can say, oh, all kids care about nowadays is stat- statues or something. Whereas we have to put it as part of a bigger system capture that narrative moment because it's quite difficult sometimes to get across some of the more tedious um, procedural points. <laughs> I, well, I'd like to build on that, really, to ask my kind of last question um, to both Raju and Craig. And it's, 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 it's a bit of a personal question because I've been reflecting on the trial process of Chauvin and trying to ask myself, why is it that really crucial political social issues often play out in courts and why people look to courts for answers to those questions. 
And you're both people who are obviously passionate about social change in this area and no doubt others. But perhaps, Raju, I'll start with you. Why didn't you end up being a full-time activist? Rather, Why did you become a lawyer? If I answer that bluntly, Richard, I was um, a refugee from the world of political activism. There's a story to be told there, but uh, let right. me answer the more important... Podcast, Raju, we can have on that. <laughs> <laughs> the the more important question I think behind that is why what is the why do people look to the courtroom and I'll answer it in this in the in this way when I am advising my clients whether it's in relation to the most gravest crime committed by an agent of the state or a relatively minor incident and when i am showing them helping them to negotiate their way through the legal process to the courtroom i have to advise them i feel i'm compelled to advise them that any illusions they have about justice should be left to what side should be left outside the courtroom because ultimately the outcome of that legal process is a lottery depending upon who is going to be presiding over that case and how the cards are dealt out. But the importance for that client, for that family, is that that courtroom is an opportunity to bring what happened under the telescope, to examine what happened, and then to reach an informed judgment for themselves on the basis of the evidence once it's been interrogated properly. And I think that is the purpose of that arena, rather than any kind of respect for the legal process, which, as you know, Richard, I find difficult to bring. <laughs> Greg, why are, you, why are you teaching law rather than um, in an NGO act, being an activist against pre-brutality? What's law, what's law bringing yeah. I mean, so I, I still hold this ideal um, and that I know it's an, that it's an aspiration, one that we are light years from both um, in Western Europe and in, in the states of the ideal of equal justice under the law. But like Raju also, like Raju, um, I, I, I also, I think it's critically important. This is part of also the teaching that I do as well and the work that I do with clients is um, a humility and a humility about what can, the possibilities of what we can expect and what we can hope to accomplish in a courtroom. And because also the, the courtrooms and, and, and the law as organized now are, are fundamentally conservative institutions that tend, that, that work to hold in place existing power hierarchies. So looking to the courtrooms primarily as the place to change the status quo is, is, is typically a bad idea. And I think so much, all too much oxygen gets sucked into sometimes what goes into a courtroom and trying to work toward institutional reform. But that said, um, I also recognize, and, and this is one of the reasons when you asked in terms of becoming a lawyer, um, I, I, yeah, I won't share the, I won't share the long, the long story, but um, I came up also around people 
who were much brighter than I am um, and didn't have the opportunities or the privilege to attend the university that I ultimately was able to. And I know that, but for the grace of God, there go I. Um, and I also know that it was my lighter skin that privileged me from a lot of my peers and families from being able to have those opportunities. And so I also felt the responsibility in terms of our various lanes and how we can contribute to social justice and reform. And that many people who I grew up with would never have that access to the courts or the legal system or being able to exercise that power. And I recognize that that's real power. But the question that I continually ask and that I challenge my law students is how actually can if seeing the law as one of a powerful tool in a fight for justice, in a fight against injustice, asking the question again and again, how are we then choosing our fights and how are those fights chosen, not by us, but directed by people who are most impacted by this? And how can those fights and legal fights actually contribute to social justice as opposed to detract from that? And that's one of the ways in which we wound up where we did with respect to the transparency victory. We want actually a lot more by the legal discovery process and by making and, and using the law in a way to lift up and expose systems of injustice to then allow other processes and, and, and people then to use that very information to fight for change. Um, well, it reminds me of the very first time I did a case with Raju about 20 plus years ago, where the first thing Raju was insistent on reminding me was that barristers are merely tools in a toolbox uh, and nothing more than that. And I should never forget it. And uh, it was entirely the right lesson. Uh, Raju, Craig, thank you both so much uh, for joining. It's been a completely fascinating um, discussion. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for having us. 